Jay Farner here, CEO of Rocket Mortgage. Making the right financial decisions has never been more important. When you turn to Rocket Mortgage, we can help guide you to those right decisions now when they matter most. Mortgage rates are near historic lows, so now is a great time to call 8338-ROCKET. And if you need some extra money, a cash-out refinance could give you that financial boost you're looking for. Call today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. And MLS number 3030. For a program committed to lifting people out of poverty and one that wants to show positive results, it is tempting to choose participants with a good chance of success. Some education, a few employable skills, people who just need an opportunity. But if you're committed to doing the most good, you would look at the most vulnerable populations living in extreme poverty, even ultra-poverty, often in isolated rural areas. Trickle Up is an organization that has taken the latter path and has achieved amazing results at the same time. And here to tell us about how they go about doing it, it's a pleasure to have with us their president and CEO, William Abrams. Good evening, Bill, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you, Denver. It's great to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Likewise, Trickle Up was founded 40 years ago, back in 1979. How did it get started, and what is your mission? Okay. Let me uh, talk about the mission first, and Mm -hmm. then I'll tell. And and as you uh, quite perceptively said, our focus is on people who are living at the absolute depths of poverty, uh, what we sometimes call ultra-poverty. We can talk more about that later. What are the differences uh, in levels of poverty? and focus virtually 100% on women. So everything that Trickle Up is about starts there, Who the population we're serving. Our mission is to help women and their families escape extreme poverty uh, by helping them start a business, save on a regular basis, gain skills and confidence that will last them a lifetime, um, and importantly kind of change their view of what's possible for them in their lives. So yeah. that's what we're all about. Uh, the origin story is, is fascinating. It was started, as you say, 40 years ago by a remarkable couple, uh, Glenn and Mildred Robbins Leet. Uh, today we would call them social entrepreneurs. <laughs> I don't think that phrase had been coined yet. So uh, the story in brief, Glenn had worked in the development sector all of his life, starting with the rebuilding of Greece after World War II. He became the president of Save the Children in the late 60s, early 70s. And the big idea in Poverty alleviation at that time was something called integrated rural development. Mm-hmm. Let's go in a village and fix everything, schools, clean water, the economy, so on and so forth. Uh, very ambitious, uh, probably too ambitious. All that complexity uh, became a burden unto itself. Uh, and I think Glenn, who I never met, he, he passed away before I got involved with Trickle Up, uh, but by all accounts was a, a genius-level thinker. And I think he went away and thought, what's all that complexity didn't work. What's the simplest thing that we could do? And the answer that he and Millie, his, his wife, uh, came up with, we're going to focus on women, which today everybody takes for granted, but yep. for then was a very progressive idea. We're going to help them gain the skills and give them a little bit of a kickstart so they can start a business. And if they have more money, a lot of good things will happen. Uh, it was based very much on the belief that if you – Give people a small boost, they will take take it the rest of the way. The women are always the heroine of the story. It's not trickle up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Millie was a uh, human dynamo, had been involved in causes all of her life, very active, for example, in civil rights. Uh, I could show you on the picture of Martin Luther King uh, delivering the I Have a Dream speech, and there to his left was one of the few Caucasians on the platform, <laughs> Millie Leet, uh, lost in thought, fascinating mm-hmm. picture. Um, 
and um, she made things happen. She mobilized the staff. She mobilized donors. She never got off an airplane without a check or a couple of business cards or both. And together they had this idea that if they could focus on people at this level of poverty, focus on women, give them a few basic inputs to get them going, that, that something amazing would happen. Uh, they had $1,000 that a relative, someone had left them uh, in a bequest, so they went to the island of Dominica, and they found 10 women, and Trickle Up was born. There you go. Uh, these founding stories are always so fascinating. You know, you mentioned ago, uh, a moment ago, Bill, the extreme poverty and ultra-poverty. We hear these terms used a lot. Mm -hmm. Is there a definition of them? Yes. Um, extreme poverty uh, has been defined sort of officially or formally uh, by the World Bank in the UN, originally at the notion, sort of the shorthand of living on a dollar a day or less. Mm -hmm. Actually, over time, that's been recalibrated to a dollar ninety with inflation and so on. Uh, so there are about seven or eight hundred million people, by the World Bank's count, who live at that level of poverty. Now, it's very hard to generalize about seven or eight hundred million. <laughs> in fact, when you unpack it, there are levels of poverty within that. So the ultra-poor, which is a term more in use in Asia and South Asia than here, um, but it's useful in describing that segment or subsegment of the extreme poor who live well below that line. Think of people who are living not on a dollar a day, but 50 cents a day or 75 cents a day. Their lives are characterized by obviously um, having very little money, almost no savings, uh, very often not enough food to get through three meals a day. Yeah, just trying to stay alive. Especially during the sort of what's called the hungry season, a few months before the harvest when there isn't much work, people have used up their stores. Um, and, and they're living more or less the same lives that their parents and probably their grandparents lived. Uh, so the question is, how do you break the cycle of poverty, the cycle of multi-generational poverty? Well, one of the ways in which you do that and is held in such high regard is microcredit or microfinance. Now, is that an effective solution for the ultra-poor? So what we do is not microcredit that many people have heard of, small loans, um, uh, no collateral loans. So one of the things that distinguishes Trickle Up is we give small grants. Ah. Uh, think of it as equity, not debt. Uh, and it start, we started doing $100 grants, uh, which was actually enough to get something going, to buy a secondhand sewing machine, to buy working capital or inventory for a small trading business. Um, so that was the idea, because people at that level of poverty are not ready to take on more debt. It's often debt that has gotten them into that level of, of extreme poverty through money lenders and things. You know, credit has always been available through mm -hmm. the money lender. Now, microcredit helped make it uh, safer and more affordable, but, but credit has never been something people at any level of poverty couldn't get their hands on. And is this a one-time grant? It's a one-time grant. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the amounts have, have, of course, grown some with time. Generally, they'll range between $125 and $250, mm -hmm. depending on the place and how much money we have and partners and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, it doesn't sound like much, but in many places, that's enough to buy four or five goats, which can get you started, uh, to buy that sewing machine, to get your small trading business going, uh, to buy some cooking equipment so that you can have a small food business, a small restaurant really outside your home. One of the things that characterizes the businesses that we help people start is uh, they're home-based. People are not yet at a point that they could afford to rent or buy another location. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the definitions of success is, boy, when a business gets to the point where it could actually have a separate address <laughs> yeah. uh, and have a couple of employees beyond family members, then you're really, really going strong. 
What are some of the challenges that face people who have lived in ultra-poverty? Oh, the list is long. Um, some, as I said, is simply um, uh, the multi-generational poverty. poverty. You're, you're trapped in a poverty trap. It's hard to get out. And even within a village, a poor village, the very poorest are often uh, marginalized, so they're exposed to um, few opportunities to earn money, uh, high degree of health risks, sickness, accidents, um, usually lack education of any, any consequence, there's very little way out for them. Uh, their housing conditions are generally quite poor. You'll very often see uh, mud houses. And, mm. and, and the roof is often a very good indicator of the whole story. And there's actually a kind of technical measure called the cash poor index, where if you look at the roof and if you can kind of look around at the roofs in a community, you can figure out who's the poorest. Because the poorest family will have a roof that's probably a hodgepodge of some branches and a piece of plywood and some burlap uh, and maybe a piece of sheet metal. And a good roof um, is sheet metal. A good roof will hold back the rain. Mm -hmm. um, so all of the things, and, and the other piece of this, and this is important, is um, discrimination. Um, people are marginalized by virtue of being women, by being virtue of an indigenous group, such mm -hmm. as Mayan populations in Guatemala where we work, or tribal populations in India. Uh, they're marginalized by lack of education, uh, sometimes caste, uh, such as in India. So uh, there's a lot of forces that people are trying to overcome. Some are very clear and count, you know, countable, lack of money, lack of education. Some are much more so subtle around this sort of aspects of discrimination. Yeah, and it would seem like in combination, this must really take a hit on their self-esteem. You ask good questions, Denver. <laughs> yes. Um, in many ways... Uh, a person's view of the world um, is at the heart of the matter. And it starts with confidence. Mm. Uh, can I actually succeed at this? It starts with a certain amount of bravery. Can I overcome some traditions? Very often these are heavily patriarchal societies with a lot of rules about what women can and can't do, where they can and can't travel. Um, and an important, important um, element we found is the ability to plan. If you live in conditions of extreme, extreme poverty, um, you don't have a lot of reason to think that what you do will change your destiny. You mm -hmm. are a captive of, of weather cycles, of patriarchal societies, of history. Um, so why plan if you can't change anything? So we take planning for granted. And so one of the important skills that we teach people is how to visualize a different future and how to plan the steps to get you there. Well, before we get into those steps, you know, you mentioned Guatemala before. What are some of the other countries in which you operate? So we operate primarily in three regions of the world. Uh, in Asia, it's primarily India, but we've been working for a couple of years in Vietnam and Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. We work in West Africa, primarily in the, the small but very poor country and, and fantastic country of Burkina Faso. And now we've been doing some advising to some of the other neighboring countries in West Africa. We are part of a large uh, multi-year project with refugees in Uganda. And in Latin America, home base is Guatemala. Uh, we've also worked in Nicaragua on and off, depending on, on political conditions. Uh, and over the past two years, we've also expanded into Mexico. Mm -hmm. So our map has grown. Uh, Fourteen years ago when I joined Trickle Up, we were in a lot more countries. It was a very kind of portable approach. We were in 15 countries, including uh, a program in the United States and a number of places in the United States. Uh, small budget, small staff. And, and we said, you know, we have to step back and think about... Um, 
quality more than quantity, and let's be in fewer places with depth. So that took us from 15 countries down to around five. Now, we also work on a consulting basis, um, primarily through our refugee program in a number of other countries, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Egypt, um, uh, Burkina Faso, um, and others. Mm -hmm. Probably uh, have a larger engagement in Jordan fairly soon, a huge refugee population. So um, you want to find that balance between depth and really understanding the local context and building strong local relationships and also a certain amount of adaptability as, as circumstances change. Have to have that healthy tension in any organization. Oh, yeah, we got plenty of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about those steps. Your core program is based on the graduation approach, and that's a method that was pioneered by BRAC, the largest NGO in the world. Walk us through the graduation Ooh. approach. Uh, before that, a little bit of history. So for sure, what we now call graduation was conceived and developed uh, brilliantly so by Brock in Bangladesh uh, over the last 15 or 20 years. But actually, what Brock developed uh, as graduation is probably 65 or 75 percent, the same thing that Trickle Up had been doing since 1979. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity come along, came along for us to get involved in a pilot project to scale Brock's graduation uh, approach through a number of countries. So we uh, looked at that and we said, this is perfect for us because it's very compatible. And it actually pushed us, it stretched us to, to modernize some of the things we were doing. Always trying to get better. Exactly. And, and you know, it's important to be open to sharing uh, and working in collaboration. The, the challenge of global poverty, of extreme poverty or ultra-poverty, is too big for any one organization. There are... 300 or 400 million people in the world living in the conditions of ultra-poverty that we talked about earlier. Um, so being open to partnership is a critical factor for success. I, I came out of the private sector. I came primarily out of the media business. Mm -hmm. So um, um, there the notion of partnership is is usually more alien. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and we're blessed, to, I'm blessed to work in an industry where, for example, we're a lot of sharing. Before mm -hmm. intellectual property, uh, was a key thing to the success of any media company. So being able to take a more relaxed view of that um, is is very important. Mm -hmm. So walk us through that uh, graduation approach. Okay, it starts with uh, uh, targeting selection of people. We have a methodology to identify the very poorest uh, in the region, uh, in the in a community. I'm sorry, and and I can talk more about targeting. Uh, and then it begins this, this sort of planning piece. So before anybody gets anything started, it's, it's some of this, right, what, do you, uh, what would you like to do? What do you think is possible? Maybe a woman has had some kind of business activity but has some other ideas. And people very often have plenty of good ideas. Yeah. So you make her the center of her transformation. Absolutely. She, we're just there mm -hmm. to give a little boost, to be a catalyst. Um, and if, if the woman doesn't own the solution, it won't work. Um, so there's planning, and we work with women, uh, particularly in kind of training in groups. So part of what we do is organize women into savings groups, a group of women, 15, 20 women, mm. who meet every week or every two weeks, and they start to save together, and then they start to lend to each other. Oh, wow. So we talked before about trickle-up giving grants, not loans, uh, and then the, the loan, the credit piece, comes into the equation through, um, uh, through the savings group. Uh, the other important element of graduation and of the trickle-up approach is uh, enabling people to get some seed capitals enough 
uh, $100, $200. And one of the differences between microcredit and what we do is it's hard. It takes a while in microcredit to get your hands on the $100 at one time. Um, and so people have enough capital to get something going. Uh, and there are a variety of, of ways that happens. Some is an outright grant. Some are soft loans. Uh, one of the important things about graduation is it always it has basic principles and a basic sequence. Um, it's usually time-bound, sort of thing, two or three years to help somebody go through change, go through a couple of crop cycles and business cycles. Um, uh, but you always have to be very, very aware and sensitive to the context of the place you're in and the population we're working with. So there's always adaptation. Absolutely. One size never fits all. Exactly. I am a certified executive coach and really believe in the power of coaching. And you make that a key part of your program. Speak to that a little bit. Uh, absolutely. And just as people, I have a personal executive coach in, in, in this country and corporations have coaches. Um, coaching is very important. So one of the things we found over time is just training people in a classroom or workshop type setting doesn't work very well. It's a lot to absorb. And you see the same things here if you go to a workshop, and especially for people who have never been to school. So you need to lay down some basic things. But then we work with partners, which might be a local grassroots agency, what we would think of as a social service agency, um, um, or government. Uh, we work more and more with government um, uh, to provide coaching. And a coach will typically uh, visit women um, uh, every week or every mm. two weeks. So it's what is your challenge today? And a lot of it, again, going back to that confidence, say, I'm here to help you, which no one has ever, no uh, person has ever done for them before. <laughs> I care about you. I'm going to call you by your first name. Uh, what's going on? How can I help? Oh, you've got a problem with your goat. Let's look at that together. And, and importantly, the role of the coach is not simply there to just dole out answers, but it's to help women develop their own strategies, their own solutions. Uh, what are you going to do about that? What might be possible? Who can you talk to in your community who might have some advice? Um, so, again, we don't want to, whether it's trickle-up staff or local staff, uh, be there in a kind of patriarchal, patronizing way and just kind of force-feed people information and solutions. They have to be the architects of their own destiny. Bill, how do you define and then measure success? So we have... Uh, uh, a rather formal uh, six definitions of success mm -hmm. that we created a number of years ago. We spent over a year debating this internally. Um, that so we can have, so we know what we're measuring uh, and that we can have some simple standards. And they're very basic. Do people have enough food to eat? Uh, do they have a safe, dignified livelihood? Do they have savings? Um, are they making improvements in the quality of their life, whether that's the conditions of their housing or children going to school? And importantly, do they have a plan? Do they have a vision and a plan for their future? So that's the framework that we use for measurement. And we have uh, uh, typically we'll kind of um, uh, gather some data, some information at the beginning of someone's involvement in the program, uh, usually at the midpoint, and then at the end so we can see what happens over time. Uh, the other piece that's very important for, for Trickle Up and similar organizations is how can we demonstrate that it's our intervention that made the difference rather than maybe it was a really good weather year, good crop year, or a big government program came into the community. Um, so we're involved with partners in various um, randomized control trial uh, tests, similar to what was developed in the pharmaceutical industry, where you have a control group and then you have the active group, so that you can do uh, a compelling job 
of, of attribution, uh, saying, okay, these activities resulted in these outcomes, and that we can credit that back to these activities and not something else. So we do, especially for an organization our size, we do more than our share of research. Um, one reason is to always be learning, always be making our program better. The other, of course, is to demonstrate to funders and others that this is effective. Yeah, that's great. And that's the right priority. So many do it just to demonstrate to funders, but your primary reason is to get better, and the funders are, are, are secondary to that. Um, you know, direct cash transfers have gotten a lot of attention mm-hmm. and have many fans, and that's when people are given money uh, with no strings attached to use as they see fit to better their lives and that of their family. How does a graduation approach compare to direct cash transfers? Uh, cash transfers definitely uh, have their place and have demonstrated um, effectiveness in a number of settings, especially in Latin America through what's called conditional mm-hmm. cash transfers. We'll give you this money as long as your kids are in school or they're inoculated. Uh, and then there are sort of pure cash transfers. Uh, a number of years ago, I think the, what started the cash transfer movement was um, a book called Just Give the Poor Money. <laughs> uh and, and get all of the process and the training and the hand-holding and the coaching. Get that all out of the way. It's expensive, and trust people that they'll figure it out. Uh, and, and it's very seductive. The simplicity of it is hard to argue with. Um, and I believe, based on some of the evidence, evidence we've seen, it can work. Uh, however, when you look specifically at the population we're working with, the ultra-poor, people who are lacking education, lacking the means to start and manage a business, facing all kinds of discrimination, just having money uh, won't get them there. So we turbocharge uh, cash transfers. In many ways, the original trickle-up $100 grant, which came with very little training and very little coaching, was uh, you know, a precursor to yeah, cash transfers. Yeah. Um, and I think time will tell what, what works best in what setting. There is no one answer. Uh, the question is, what is the answer in a specific place for a specific population at a specific time, and how do you accumulate the evidence to show that it's really working? People and experts will tell you that one of the most difficult things is to take a successful program like yours and to scale it up. There are a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, when you decided that it was a priority for the organization to reach more people, how did you go about doing it? So... Uh, about six or seven years ago, uh, we took a serious look at what we were doing. We said, well, we're doing great work, and we are helping 10, 12, 15,000 families a year escape extreme poverty mm-hmm. on a sustainable basis, and you feel very good about that. And I go out, and I travel, and I meet women, and those stories just fill your cup for a long time, <laughs> all the inspiration. Um, and then we said, but now how do we scale? Because there are 300 or million or more families that would benefit from this, and so we made that the central pillar of our strategy, and the answer we came up with was uh, we had to work with governments and very large international NGOs, Mercy Corps organizations like that, because we simply, the hardest thing to scale for any nonprofit is your funding. Mm. We were not going to go from being a $5 million NGO to a $50 million or a $500 million check, uh, $500 million organization. Bill Gates was not going to write us a check for $50 million a year till the end of time. And here were governments, and we were kind of allergic to government mm. for all the reasons you can, you can well understand, politics, corruption, so on and so forth. And we said, we have to get over that because there are a number of governments that are very sincere about this as, as a matter of mission and as a matter of policy, uh, governments that have tremendously effective poverty programs, smart, dedicated staffs, uh, smart research. Um, and if we went into this with mutual respect, 
uh, and also made sure we understood the difference in the kind of power balance, if you will, between uh, trickle up, uh, a small organization based in the United States and a large agency in India or West Africa. Um, and, and so we started out and we, uh, we exceeded beyond, uh, uh, we exceeded our expectations. Uh, starting with the UN Refugee Commission. We were not really working with refugees then, but they liked this graduation approach as we practiced it uh, so that refugees could get back to work. Uh, we were able to enter into relationships with two very large um, state-level poverty agencies in India. We're now advising the government of Paraguay, working in Guatemala at the municipal level, which is sort of where it happens, mm -hmm. not so much in the, in the capital. Um, and overall very effectively, and, and they bring a lot to it. And so their ability to scale far exceeds ours. Uh, and also we were looking to change our own business model. So up to that point, Trickle Up had paid essentially 100% of the cost to deliver the program. And we said, well, that that's an impediment to scale. And many of these governments have significant poverty budgets. Now, whether that's from their tax base or the World Bank, money is money. Money is and, money. Um, and in many cases, what we found that's fascinating is if we could help large agencies um, organize some of their existing inputs and resources a little bit better, uh, they could have greater effect. So we found, for example, working with the UN Refugee Commission, they had a lot of the components in some form or another, but putting them together in the right sequence, in the right combination, uh, would make a difference. And the incremental cost was quite small. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we're always looking. And the other thing... Uh, that's important about government um, is government will also have other programs, other approaches that address the other parts of the poverty equation that we don't. Our mm -hmm. focus is economic development, mm -hmm. but people need health, they need clean water. Um, you know, we see this in India that working with state government partners, we're able to mobilize other resources that would normally be beyond, that, you know, whether it's uh, sanitary latrines or education or access to health. So that's really uh, critical. One of the great challenges of our work is poverty is about much more than lack of money. So mm -hmm. how do we help mobilize resources to the whole equation? Yeah, it's interesting the way you walked us through that because it is so um, frequent that social entrepreneurs don't want to deal with government because <laughs> yes. they're slow and it's yeah. difficult. But inevitably, if you really want to make impact, you have to partner with government. Um, that's been our experience yeah. so far. And, yeah. and it's a learning process. Uh, dealing with a big bureaucracy, staff turnover, budgets in and out, politics. Um, you know, so for example, in, in Guatemala, being able to work at the community level, municipal level, uh, in one community where we really started this approach in Guatemala, we've now been through three mayors. So mm -hmm. any program that can survive three mayors <laughs> uh, is a program that's got some legs. Some stick-to-itiveness to it. Let me ask you um, about the, one of the most important relationships of any nonprofit organization and that would be between the board chair and the CEO, and then in turn, the culture of the board. What insights do you have on that over your 14, 15 years of leading Trickle Up? We are blessed with a great board, and it's interesting. Trickle Up is not the highest profile organization in New York City, and all of our board members could be on bigger, fancier boards that would get their pictures in the New York Times on Sunday and that kind of thing. So they're there because they believe in the mission. Mm. Uh, they like the fact that we're highly focused and consistent over 40 years. They like the fact that we have evidence to, to demonstrate trickle-up works. Uh, our board has 21 members. Um, uh, many of them stay quite a long time. We don't really obsess over term limits. I 
personally believe if you have a good board member who's productive, why would you say goodbye to them? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so in terms of the board chair, uh, likewise, I've been blessed with two great board chairs in my 14 years. Uh, the first was uh, Wendy Gordon Rockefeller, who had great experience working with nonprofits um, and and very good at leading the board and a very good advisor to me. I came from outside this sector, so I needed a lot of coaching and hand-holding. Uh, and after her 10 years were up, uh, our current board chair uh, is a woman named Penny Foley who works on Wall Street um, and particularly does international investing. Uh, and we find trickle-up resonates with people who do global investing because one way or another they understand what's happening in these poor countries at a different level. Um, and, and we have a great relationship uh, I think we're both totally committed to the mission. Um, everybody understands every, things take time. Uh, Penny is uh, really smart. Uh, she's tough. Mm. People who work on Wall Street are tough. Women who work on Wall Street really have um, uh, good skills in terms of directness. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they keep us on our toes because they ask good questions. Yeah, that's the key. And a couple of times I can think of one or two examples. But we've sort of gotten lost uh, in the forest, and the board will pull you back. So now let's look at the tree. Or we get lost in the trees, mm-hmm. and the board will help us look at the forest. Uh, so Penny and I meet uh, usually once a month. Um, we talk on the phone and email all the time. Uh, she's supportive. She helps us clarify our ideas, and you know, so she's not a pushover yep. in the best sense of the word. Yeah. And that's what you need in that dynamic is someone who really will be your thought partner and help you... Challenge your ideas. Yeah. And make them better as a result. And I think another thing that's important, you know, in many ways being the CEO of a nonprofit is a lonely job. You have a great staff, you consult with them, but then there are things you don't can't consult. At a certain Mm. point, your spouse or partner gets tired of hearing you complain (laughs) over dinner. What point? (laughs) uh, So having a board chair who's the thought partner and also having a a coach helps you navigate. Let me close with this, Bill. In the decade and a half that you've been doing this, you have seen a profound transformational change in thousands upon thousands of women and in turn their families and communities. What have you found to be the key factor, the key element, that essence that makes this remarkable change all possible, which without it would be almost impossible for it to have to occur? The secret sauce of Trickle Up is the behavioral change, the psychological change, that we help foster in the people we're working with. Yes, we provide training, we provide seed capital grants, we help organize savings groups, so a number of kind of tangible, concrete things we do. But at the end of the day, um, success is a matter of helping a woman see my future can be different than mine, uh, my children's future, importantly, can be much better. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna take the steps and do the work uh, and, and being involved in trickle-up is extra work for women. They don't get to sort of not take care of the house or mm-hmm. do their own work. So, uh, you know, you have to be aware of that. They may have to get up at 4 a.m. instead of 5 a.m. to manage their trickle-up business. But out of that comes confidence, willingness to take risks, and a lot of this is about helping people recalibrate their risk uh, assumptions for the future. Um, willing to take on uh, and challenge some of the prevailing um, uh, mores and in ways of society, and, and I will tell you, I've seen it dozens of times, the power of a dozen women together, yeah. even women who were voiceless and virtually invisible in their community, and when they get together and they go to the local uh, council uh, to make a point or to challenge something. It's miraculous. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't take a lot 
to make change. And, and the women, they amaze themselves mm-hmm. uh, at what they're able to accomplish. And you give them all hope, that's for sure. Hope is, is you know, uh, uh, Millie Leed, our, our co-founder, uh, said, you know, very beautifully, well, yes, we provide training and all these things, but the most important thing we leave behind is confidence. Fantastic. Well, Bill Abrams, the president and CEO of Trickle Up, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can people learn more about your work or make a contribution to help it if they're so inclined? Very easy. Go to trickleup.org. There's tons of information, and yes, of course, there's a donate button. A <laughs> couple um, of them, probably. <laughs> and, and that's great. But honestly, if we can help, if people can learn about the conditions of global poverty and the fact that there are solutions, in many ways, that's the most important income uh, outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Bill. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Denver. I'll Enjoy be back the with the conversation. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. <laughs> 